Today we'll be delving into the controversial origins of stand-up comedy, and we'll be discussing the hidden curriculum in medicine. This is Doctor vs. Comedian. Dr. Asif Doja, and this is the Doctor of Laughs. Not a real doctor. Ali Hassan. Every episode, I pick a topic for Ali from comedy and entertainment, and I question him about it. Then Ali picks a topic for medicine and health and grills me on that topic. Today, we'll be delving into the controversial origins of stand-up comedy, and we'll be discussing the hidden curriculum in medicine. These are spooky, mysterious topics today. <laughs> what are we talking about? <laughs> It's just in time for the Halloween season. Good so. holiday, huh? In the pandemic, we're already wearing masks. So, Ali, I think both of these topics in this episode are, they're kind of like topics or phrases which we mentioned in a previous episode That's that we right. never really followed up on no, right and, it, and so they piqued people's interest yes, the people are like ah, yes. this uh, you know what i really love about uh, podcast listeners i think because it's such a intimate medium mm. and i have another podcast called eat and drink and the exact same thing happened with eat and drink when uh, my co-host there marco and i would say like you know we would mention something and we'd be like but that's for another podcast but then we never did those podcasts mm -hmm. so somebody you know actually messaged us she was she was pregnant and at home and she said here's a list of all the things you said you would get to and have not and it was like wow. 19 items over like 70 episodes we'd always say oh yeah we definitely have to do a coffee episode we definitely have to do what a tomatoes episode and i was like well that's uh insane but what we found out there was more than just her there's a number of other people and now the same thing's happening to us so we have been reminded that you started talking about the hidden curriculum but didn't dive into it you you had a very narrow outlook on it can i say that and then there was much more to talk about yeah the, yeah we kind of delved the different pieces of it so we'll get to that in the second part yeah but in this part, I want to talk to you about something you mentioned in some of our previous episodes about, I think it was the episode about your teaching that you've been doing this course, this university course mm -hmm. on uh, stand-up comedy. And you mentioned something in passing about how the origins of stand-up comedy are somewhat controversial and we never really followed up on that. And I didn't, well, we, I didn't ask you a follow-up question about it when I probably should have. So I thought maybe let's take a step back and we'll talk a bit about, I guess, maybe the origins of stand-up comedy. And I guess it, mainly in North America, but you mentioned also it was happening in England at the time as well. Well, it's connected to Europe, certainly. But yeah, you said controversial. I would go so far as to say racist. Is that what? controversial? Yeah, it's more factual. It's more factual. Okay. Well, I don't know. So, well, tell me a bit about this. Well, here's the thing. It's very interesting. You know, my my goal as I've I've been teaching is to teach students the class that I wish I had taken mm -hmm. before I started stand up comedy. And I didn't take any classes. You know, I was a believer that the stage is. I was also a believer that I'd taken too many classes at my at that point in my life, and I'm mm -hmm. I'm not a particularly good sit down and take notes and study type of student. But uh, studying by practicing, and many people believe that. You know, stand up. You don't need to take a class. It's all on stage. But I do wish that I had I had had some history on stand up. And when I started doing some sort of independent research in anticipation of teaching, I was pretty surprised about this because I had 
you know, formulated these loose thoughts about it before teaching this class. But then I was I was teaching these class these this class, and I said, well, obviously, stand up comedy does have racist origins, and I think it's important to know that because many comedians are like, you know, you one good joke can change the world and this no it can't you know if it could Mm -hmm. uh we wouldn't be in the place we're in 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 many different respects so you can't you know john stewart would have prevented a donald trump if comedy was so we have that whole episode we talked about can comedy affect change and so there's the there's another element that that you know as as people think of uh stand-up particularly comics i don't know if other people think about it but but many people think of, of, of it as this this singularly beautiful art form mm-hmm. where else does somebody make themselves so vulnerable on stage and they have no ensemble to lean on it's just them and the microphone and all odds against them type of thing and like now just make them laugh with your words and and in some cases your actions obviously and, and so, they say it's this in, in sorry to interrupt they say it's this instant feedback right so it's one feedback. person you know with an instant feedback from an audience, right? You're right. not uh, recording a song because a singer-songwriter could record by himself or herself in a, in a room and, and put that out, but they don't get that instant feedback, right? So instant feedback from the audience telling you, letting you know if what you're saying works or not. Instant gratification for the performer. So there is some beauty in that. And so people sort of live in that, in the now, that this is what comedy is. But it's it's very worthwhile, in my opinion, to look back. And, and when people look back and see the 70s, they're very interested in like Richard Pryor and George Carlin and Joan Rivers and the impact of people like that. But looking back even further reveals a, a definitely a racist origins of this, uh, of this art form. Now, it starts, you know, the no no one can really argue that the roots of stand up comedy are in vaudeville right and vaudeville i don't know how many people know what vaudeville is uh, it really i actually we've talked about vaudeville on this show and i think it was uh, not only in relation to the class but also the fact that i was hired as a vaudeville impresario on an episode of murdoch mysteries have we talked about that on this yeah, show I don't, I don't think so that is quite hilarious that you were quite there hilarious. were lots of, lots of south asian vaudevillians back I, in the well, whatever the, the 1800s so, or when does murdoch mysteries yeah, take yeah, place early 19 okay. early 19 let's backtrack this is a uh, TV show in Canada, but it is syndicated across the world. It is syndicated, as, as, you know. exceedingly popular. Many people will have a hard time believing that. Other people will have a zero hard time believing that. Depends on if you watch it or not. It is It is in its 15th or 16th year. And the time period is like... 1905, 1906 okay, so now. turn of the century. Okay. And not only guy... were there no Pakistanis there, Pakistan didn't even exist. And oh, yes, yes. they certainly weren't in Avad if they did, you know, if it were brown people. <laughs> but if there like, was a Pakistani person in North America at the time, you're assuming people would laugh at them? I, I'm the impresario, my friend. I bring vaudeville to the people. Oh, I don't I didn't make understand people laugh that. Okay. In this so, show. so anyway, so this is the, this is a show. It's it's quite popular, and he, I guess, he solves mysteries. I keep thinking the only people who watch the show are 65 plus, but uh, I don't. You know, it's it's not true. Think, Some of my friends love that show. Plus. Oh, is that Some right? Yeah, I think you. Show. Yeah. It is surprising. I started watching a little bit. You know, I would catch it here and there, and I started watching a little bit more before I was going to film it. And there's definitely, you know, there are those shows that are just corner gas I always bring up. Like corner gas wasn't there to make you really like uh, think and be on the edge of your seat with with uh, curiosity and the, the suspense and the comedy. And oh, my God, this is so much. But man, 
there are days where corner gas just hit the spot. That's exactly <laughs> what you needed, <laughs> you know? But in any case, so vaudeville, I yeah. have played a vaudeville impresario. What is vaudeville? It was referred to in the U.S. as a farce with music. And really what we could call it uh, today would be <laughs> a, a variety show. <laughs> and it was popular from the mid-1890s until the early 1930s. You would have somewhere between 10 and 15 acts on stage unrelated. So you have acrobats, magicians, comedians, although they were never called stand-up comedians at the time. They were called monologists or okay. uh, people doing um, performing in one, it was called. You perform in one. There was no term stand-up mm -hmm. comedian until much later. And animals, you, elephants on stage, singing, dancing, this kind of stuff, right? So these are all in big music halls and variety halls. And it was growing and growing in popularity from, from you know, the hundreds to the thousands. People would come. In Montreal, we spoke about the Imperial Theater, where I saw Indiana Jones for the first time. Later found out that that was a vaudeville theater. But yeah, these were very, very popular. Eventually, they died because of, the, A, the Great Depression sort of killed people's financial ability to go out to see these shows. And also the talkies. You know what the talkies are, Austin? Oh, yes. Movie. You it's love so your talkies. Non-silent movies. That's a yeah, weird way of exactly. phrasing it, but movies with sound. Yeah. And those movies actually were growing so much in popularity come the early, early 30s, before the Depression really set in, and the late 20s, that vaudeville shows would have to have talkies also on them. So in, in between these juggling and acrobatic and comedian acts, you also had to play a talkie. And mm -hmm. then soon, uh, you know, just as the Great Depression was setting in, from my understanding, it was a talkie with entertainment around it. But people loved these movies so much that that you were like basically revolving the rest of the show around it, which was not the roots, obviously, in the 1890s when it started. But yeah, radio, television and the Depression sort of killed vaudeville. But what did come out of vaudeville was certainly this idea of stand up. And so there were people like Will Rogers is a name people might know. The, the big guy in this world of vaudeville is a guy named Frank Fay. Nobody will know Frank Fay necessarily unless they've really studied this time. But he was that guy because everybody else, these comedians were using props. They were using some kind of, uh, you know, dressing up as a character or something like that. Frank Faye somehow graduated out of that and decided he'd go on stage dressed the exact same way he dressed on the street. And it was, uh, which seems like a no brainer to us now. But it was not, it was revolutionary mm -hmm. in a way. And it was also uh, derided. Like people are like, what is he doing? Where's his, mm -hmm. where's his stuff? Where is his, right. where, he, this guy needs to play a character. Who the hell does he think he is that he can come up and do this on stage? But he's a guy, you know, who, who talks, who, who brought this first, first started. Uh, oh, oh, there's a quote, actually. There was a, a quoted um, review of Frank Fay where somebody said, uh, Frank Fay needs a proper straight man in order to support his comedy act. He needs props. A comedian is nothing without props. Mm -hmm, I had mm -hmm. taken down that uh, quote. That was a review of his, uh, of his set. So he was definitely looked down upon at the beginning. But anyway, he, he's sort of the father of this, this concept of stand-up. But here's where things get tricky. What did vaudeville come out of? Vaudeville came out of the minstrelsy. So vaudeville, you know, I'm telling you about magicians and acrobats and druggers and all that. 
But the dark side of, of, uh, of vaudeville is that it grew out of minstrelsy. Now, not everyone's going to know what minstrelsy is, and I won't assume you do, but it's, it's this idea of playing characters in blackface. And just to nail home the point, I'm going to say this outright, it's about dehumanizing African-Americans at the mm -hmm. time, mocking them, humiliating mm -hmm. and dehumanizing them. Mm -hmm. That's minstrelsy, which led to vaudeville, which led to, to, to stand up. So we don't know from what I've read, nobody seems to know when blackface originated. Definitely, it's credited to some of these, you mentioned Europe or in the US, those European theater productions like Othello, Shakespeare's Othello, definitely there were people performing in blackface. That mm -hmm. was not always for, for the, the uh, humiliation and the mockery. But when then, then when it came to the U.S., these European immigrants came here and started really, they, they sort of really dug in to this idea of blackface and making up these clownish, buffoonish characters. So when people were laughing at these characters, they were laughing and being like, oh yeah, that's exactly how these blacks behave and this kind of stuff. And one of the interesting things about it, I don't know if you know how the Irish were regarded when they first came. Yeah, they were severely discriminated against, which again is hard to believe now, but this is they were totally discriminated against in the in the in the US. Right. And for that reason, it was mostly Irish performers who would dress in blackface to kind of take oh the gosh. light. Yeah, like, hey, don't look at us. Remember who's really the bad people here. We're just, uh, you know, hardworking Irish here to entertain you. So, and nothing to say against the Irish. In fact, uh, as you say, it is hard to believe because of all the you know, accomplishments of the Irish in this, in, in this, in this continent. But yeah, they really did popularize uh, mostly it was it was irish working class irish performers there's a guy named thomas dartmouth rice he was uh, born in new york he's considered the father of minstrelsy i mentioned his name in case anybody wants to point fingers and who do we have to blame for this he traveled to the south from new york Mm -hmm. He observed slaves and came back and developed a black stage character. The name of that character, this is in the 1830s, then went on to become the name of a, of a series of laws and statutes that defined segregation. Do you know what that what I'm talking about? Do you mean like Jim Crow and Jim Crow laws? You got it. Huh? You're okay. more than just a pretty face there, bud. Jim Crow laws were right. these sort of defining laws around uh, segregation, very, very racist, uh, bigoted laws. And those laws, in case anybody ever was like, why is that called Jim Crow, that era? That time, those laws, mm -hmm. it is named after wow. a black stage character who was so popular. It's called Jim Crow. And this is in the 1830s that this happened. So I, you know, not to kill any, it's a weird thing to teach first class and second class uh, in, in a way. But I think people should know. I think people should know the roots and, 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 and not to feel bad about the comedy that they're performing and, and learning, but more to be like, you know, these are the roots and let's potentially take it in the exact opposite direction. Let's use comedy for good. Let's use comedy for empowerment. Uh, let's use comedy to, 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 to punch up and not punch down, right? To just continue this trajectory away from the 1830s and early 1900s. So I have a couple of questions for you. Why 
this person who was up in New York, who came down, any ideas of their motivation? Because you're saying the 1830s, slavery was abolished in uh, 1865 with the 13th Amendment. So was it was it someone who was like still want to propagate slavery or, or was it just something to be done at the expense of African-Americans? I don't know about what he was trying to pop, pop. I don't know what the agenda was specifically. I don't think we'll ever know that. But I think he probably went and hung out with other white people in the South and heard how they speak about the black people there and African-Americans. And he found this range of negative stereotypes, lazy, ignorant, which is always the lazy always gets me, whether it's the African-Americans or the or the or the Mexican-Americans. How do you? These are the hardest working people. Around. They're enslaved. Their only job is to work. It's ridiculous. Anyway, lazy, ignorant, uh, hypersexual, criminal, or cowardly. Mm-hmm. So he just dug in with all his 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 um, comedy, quote unquote, into these stereotypes. Oh, yeah, the coward. He's playing the black coward. And people, we go, we get that. We hear that. So what his agenda was, I don't know. It could have been just simply to entertain but he definitely wound up, A, propagating stereotypes that were already in existence and B, really exploiting them and making a ton of money off them. Again, I can't stress enough how popular he must have been if an entire era is named after the character that he created. Yeah, it's interesting. And obviously it made money, right? And it was successful. Absolutely. Otherwise we wouldn't know about it. Otherwise it would have just died out. So um, yeah, that, that's interesting. And then what do you think about the this being kind of the ugly, sordid history of stand-up comedy and how it evolved over time? What do you think like the long-term ramifications of that are uh, in terms of comedy? Well, there were definitely implications. You know, 2021 going forward to 2022 I can't you know I can't tell you what the ramifications are now I can only tell you you know what I hope for for for, for the now but certainly you had once you know the depression had taken place and once the talkies and radio were popularized and once stand up became a thing and was recognized as stand up comedy what happened was you had separate you had these, well, there's two things that happened that are of note. One, you had like sort of the Borscht Belt comedians. These were generally Jewish comedians performing in, you know, the Catskills and mm-hmm, all these sort of Jewish mm-hmm. resorts. And there was there's nothing to do with African-Americans there except probably serving at the, at the resorts. And then you had, in response to the Borscht Belt, they said, we'll call ourselves the Chitlin Circuit. And this was a black comedian circuit. Oh, wow. Only black people go. So you had these sort of, you know, segregated comedy mm-hmm. scenes. And scene, you know, I'm talking about very big, I'm talking about, you know, across the country. Mm-hmm. But in, the, in, in New York, it was at the Apollo, you know, the Chitlin Circuit. Vaudeville was at the Palace Theater, both huge, huge, you know, the epicenters of both. And then, uh, yeah, Vaudeville basically turned into less of the acts and, and, and more of the, um, you know, that, that went into separate things, but yeah, the stand-up went on. Because you could imagine that the acts, that was then subserved to television and television shows with variety shows, as you said. So you don't, you wouldn't necessarily need to go see that live, but that comedian that you could see how that would evolve, right? So TV, well, movies, 100%. then television, I should say. Ed Sullivan. Away the variety. Yeah. 
Milton Berle gave birth to these careers of these various, you know, Mort Saul, Lenny Bruce, uh, you know, a young Richard Pryor, a young Joan Rivers. People wouldn't recognize them. Richard Pryor in a suit Mm-hmm. Uh, in, in the mid sixties, um, uh, uh, what's his name? George Carlin. I'm blanking on the greatest, one of the greatest comedians of all time. George Carlin in a mm-hmm. suit. They wouldn't recognize him. And Joan Rivers, just a sweet, sweet woman next door. You know, these were all they were given birth to by television. But another important thing happened because you know the civil rights. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We were in the mid sixties, and segregation still existed in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, so you can remove laws, you can enact new laws. That doesn't mean the sentiments go away. Right, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. people still have racism flowing through their veins, if not the veins of their parents and grandparents. So it's a, it's a you know very very gradual thing eradicating those ideas. So what you had was black comedians who may very well be on television, but it wasn't easy for them to perform for white audiences. And the reason is because white people were not used to being told what to think by black people. This was completely against what what, what the the roots of America were, right? So I have so much respect for for guys like uh, Dick Gregory and Red Fox and these early black comedians, they had to walk a very, very thin mm-hmm. line. If you ever listen to those clips, they're making fun of the white man without making fun of the white audience mm-hmm. in front of mm-hmm. them. And it's a very tricky dance they have to do and not easy at all. And, and, and I think in my mind, if you ever look up Dick Gregory, if anybody looks up Dick Gregory, you'll see when he passed away, he was mostly known as an activist. And part of me can't help but wonder if he died an activist or or got so far into activism because he couldn't say exactly what he wanted to for so many years on stage as he was starting. And then you can see, now you're drawing this line. So I I can see this line now being drawn from the minstrel shows, vaudeville, porch belt. We say chitlins? Chitlins, yeah. Chitlins circuit. Chitlins are um, a food that popular amongst some African-American households in the South. And then this movement into like Dick Gregory, Red Fox. And then I guess it evolves then into this counterculture, right? The counterculture of the 70s. Then saying, no, we're not putting up with this. We're going to call you out right to your face right and and not not just black comedians white comedians as well you know absolutely absolutely and that's a huge part of the 70s was very much counterculture and that's why you see this transformation of even the comedians who had already started doing comedy they were like i'm not in line with this suit and tie person right all of a sudden george carlin t-shirt and ponytail and Richard Pryor, it's like just a loose shirt with a leather jacket on top. And it's uh, they, they're transforming as people. You know, I teach this in this in, in the class that, that, that I teach. I get very passionate about all this. And I, it's hard to impress upon 20 year old students what Johnny Carson was, you know, how important SNL was once upon mm-hmm. a time, how mm-hmm. important HBO was once upon a time mm-hmm. to help. All comedians, but certainly uh, black American comedians who had been effectively shut out from white audiences, certainly white live audiences. Mm-hmm. And then and then you have really the best of the best, right? Red Fox, man, he was nominated for a, for a Grammy for one of his albums. He had he was the first African American to open up a comedy club in Beverly Hills. Not in like, you know, some whatever uh, South Side Chicago place in Beverly Hills. I mean, this is like 
this is a badass man. And he had over 50 party albums, they were called, and he was performing on television and performing at the Apollo as well, obviously, but also performing for white audiences. So these are, these are real, real pioneers. And then the 70s, the 80s come in. It's Johnny Carson is the one place mm-hmm. you can perform. Mm-hmm. And that makes your career if you get on it. And then SNL is a little bit more for a little slightly edgier comedians. Mm-hmm. Then Johnny decides to do, instead of a 90-minute show, a 60-minute show. That gives room to the late show. Now Letterman comes right. in, edgier comedian. So right, the Sam Kinnisons, the Andy Kaufman, so on. And then HBO comes and cable, you can just swear. You can just say whatever. Right, right. And now George Carlin is switching over. Richard Pryor is switching over. And, you know, there's a professor, Wayne Fetterman, who was also a comedian for many, many years. If anybody watches Crashing with um, Pete Holmes, very funny show on HBO, by the way. Mm-hmm. Wayne Fetterman's mm-hmm. on that. He talked about the most insane thing, I believe it was in the late 70s, Richard Pryor had a movie in theaters, and that movie was of him doing stand-up. That was the entire movie. He went mm-hmm. to the movie right. to see, yeah. I think it was live at Sunset Strip. It's Richard Pryor doing comedy. And you're in a theater watching the. And he said that was an absolutely revolutionary move. It had never been done before on that the scale, like released nationwide and all that. So mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. it's like you don't only enjoy the Richard Pryors and the Eddie Murphys in the 80s and the Chris Rocks. You also have to think like how far they had to come, how, what the struggle was like for the people who came before them to break open the barriers for them. So it's, I don't know, I find it incredibly interesting and also just a good reminder that the stand-up comedy that people love so much, just know that its roots, its origins are not wonderful. They're actually, uh, you know, borderline disgraceful, but all you can hope is that you move as far as you can away from those to a, to a much more positive place so that people you know, who really opened the gates of stand-up comedy and made it so accessible to everyone, those people can be like, okay, this is great. We're proud of what's happening here. All right, Asif, we're going to talk about the hidden curriculum. And there's something interesting that I want listeners to know about before we get into it, which is that you have said this to me, and I didn't know this about you, childhood friend or not, Mm -hmm. how much we keep in touch or not, I did not know this. You said after your actual field of expertise, which is pediatric neurology, your second field of expertise is effectively the hidden curriculum. Is that correct? Did I hear yeah, that right? That's, that's, it's what I do probably have done the most research on. So I again, I don't know even know if I mentioned this to you in the past or in our origin story episode uh, early on in the run of the uh, podcast. But when I was in residency, you know, they encourage you to do research, but I was mo- more interested in doing medical education research. So because of that, I did a master's in education. And then subsequent to that, I've done research mainly, though I do some research in pediatric neurology, a lot of my research, I would say most of it is actually in medical education and these topics. And so one of these topics that I was very interested in studying is this hidden curriculum, this concept of the hidden curriculum. All right. So tell me, basically, 
bring us up to speed on what you spoke about previously about the hidden curriculum and what your biggest area of focus is in this uh, in the hidden curriculum. Right. So I think we've touched on the hidden curriculum in smaller parts, right? We, we looked at various slices in, of the hidden curriculum. So mm. we talked about stereotypes of doctors, right? How we th think orthopedic surgeons are jocks and uh, pathologists are antisocial and neurologists are nerds, right? We talked about that. Mm. So that's a little bit of it, okay? And I want you to think about how would a student learn that that's a stereotype, right? So just think about that. We also talked about it before in the unconscious bias, right? How do how do students end up getting learning these stereotypes of certain ethnic groups? And why do doctors always lump these people in? Where is that learned, right? And and where do they learn that? And so the point of the hidden curriculum overall is the hidden curriculum is what a medical school is teaching without intending to teach it. Mm -hmm. So it's these unintended messages that you're sending. So for example, and I'll go through a bunch of examples because I think it's one of those concepts where you're like, okay, I think I know what you're talking about, but the more I give examples, the more you can understand. You may even think of some in your own field. Our listeners who are thinking, uh, who are listening may think of ones in their own field and you might as well, Ali. So for example- I might, I might. don't so, tell me what to think. I'll think whatever I want to think, but I'm so listening. For example, in those stereotypes that we were talking about uh, of the in the unconscious bias, right? A lot of times we teach by doing cases, right? We're like, okay, this uh, 29 year old female comes in with uh, this and this problem with uh, numbness to her uh, right arm. But when I tell you that story, who you're picturing in your head? And if you automatically picture a white person in your head, that's a problem, right? And it means that maybe when we come up with these cases, we should pick different ethnicities all the time. So we're not always stereotyping. So that's a, a hidden curriculum. Like if you never that's specify- That's so interesting though, dude. That's so interesting that by mentioning the actual background of the person, that is a better thing to do. You right, know what I mean? Like you would think exactly. it goes against like, uh, so this 29 year old black woman comes in and then people be like, oh, is the blacks comparing about their, mm -hmm. complaining about their gallbladder. I don't know. I don't know what kind of stereotype, you know, like, but by pu putting the word black or South Asian or Chinese in there, it's actually helpful. And I, that, that goes against. I would say sometimes, but what if it's again, you know, uh, I don't know if you know this Ali, I'm sure you do, but uh, uh, substance abuse is quite prevalent amongst First Nations people in, mm -hmm. in Canada. So if the case is a 29 year old First Nations man comes in with liver failure and the end of once the students all figure it out, they have alcoholism and substance use and that's what led to their liver failure. That's probably not also the best stereotype. Do you know what I mean? Like sure, now sure. you're going, in the wrong direction because you're you're assuming every single time someone's first day, oh, better think about alcoholism and substance mm -hmm. use in this person. So well, it, depends. Uh, so here's, it depends. Well, here's a suggestion. Maybe you can put it to use, maybe you can't, but you say, you know, an indigenous First Nations person comes in with, uh, you know, alcoholism, uh, whatever, cirrhosis of the liver. And then in brackets, you put because genocide, and then you move on. No? Just to remind people <laughs> yeah, that, that would... uh, there was an attempted genocide on their, uh, you know, parents and grandparents and uh, ancestors. Anyway, it's a thought. I'm just trying to help here, Asif. But anyway, go on. So we, I think it's it's helpful to just take a step back. And so I'm interested in how people learn about this hidden curriculum and the ramifications of it. So, but we should probably 
try and describe it a bit more. So we have the formal curriculum, right? These are what's written down, right? You probably, you're teaching a course, you probably have a formal curriculum. These are the objectives that we're gonna be covering this whole semester, right? And you have an itemized list of things you'll be covering and the objectives and what you want people to learn, right? So we have that in medical school and that's what they teach in the courses and stuff like that. But then we also have what's called the informal curriculum. And this is the on the job training, right? We talked about this before. You do a few years of medical school in class and then you start doing your rotations. And so when I'm walking down the hallway with a student, I'll be like, oh, we're gonna see this patient. I want you to remember that whenever you see like a baby who's super irritable, right? So you might wanna think about meningitis. Uh, so remember that. So I'm, I'm teaching them, you know, this is how you prioritize, this is how you do this, and, and, and those little pearls of wisdom that you pick up from your doctor. So that's also really important too. But then, like I said, there's this hidden curriculum, right? The medical school obviously wants me to teach students when I'm walking down the hallway with them about the these pearls in medicine and things like that. That's what they want me to do. But they don't want me, not that I say stuff like this, to say like, oh, roll my eyes, look, we got this another lame referral from a family doctor, right? And denigrate family doctors, uh, right? That's the opposite of what we want to happen. And that may be perpetrating some of those uh, stereotypes of doctors that we talked about before. So I'll give you some more examples. So a, a good example of that informal curriculum, like I said, the talking in the hallways and elevators and things like that, but it's also how students learn to do rounds. Like uh, you've, I don't know if you've ever been admitted to a hospital, but you certainly have had relatives who've been admitted to a hospital as have I. Mm, yeah, my dad, uh, it was a second home to my father for many years, the hospital. Absolutely, I've so been in a lot, yeah. You know how doctors do these rounds, right? Sometimes mm -hmm. they'll be with a group of students or residents and they kind of go from room to room and talk about it. Oh, we're doing rounds now. Uh, you know, make sure you're by your dad's bedside or, you know, ask your questions during the rounds. But how do they learn to do that? How do they know, okay, show up at 8 a.m., maybe write a few notes on the patient ahead of time, we review their lab work, and then we'll go room to room to do that. There's, you don't take a course on how to do rounding. It just, you learn that on the job. So that's a, that's a positive aspect of this informal curriculum. And those are important. You know, we learn a lot from nurses. So again, we could talk about this in another episode. Episode. So our, that one listener who's writing down our topics for another episode can write that down because I did a paper as well about what we learn from nurses. And that could be an informal or hidden curriculum stuff, but we do learn a lot from nurses. So we have to value uh, their contributions to teaching not just nurses, but medical students as well. And so we learn from them. But again, it's, I want to highlight more, not those interactions, but the interactions where we, we don't, we're, we're teaching the wrong thing. It's, it's a bit of a do as I say, not as I do type thing. But uh, here's another example. So say in medical school, we have these blocks often, like we do a cardiology block where we learn about the heart, then another block about neurology, so we learn about the brain. And what happens is, uh, say we have an exam. So at the end of every block, we do an exam, big, huge, multiple choice, short answer examination that you have to do, you study hours and hours for. But then they decide, let's do a block on um, diversity and inclusion right? These are inequality and, and that would be really useful. Okay, so let's do a block. Let's spend a month on it. See, that's going to show how much we're interested in this. I don't know who's saying that. Somebody in the medical school is shouting into the void about, you know, we'll show them. And then at the end of the block, they're like, you know what? Diversity and inclusion is such a, a difficult subject to assess. So let's just do uh, participation. If you showed up, we'll take attendance and that will count as your mark, you know? So pass, fail, and, and just if you take attendance, right? So you think, 
look at that. We devoted the same amount of time to uh, diversity and inclusion as we did to cardiology. So look, we, we've proven that's just as important. But you know, and I know, it's not as just important. Just about showing up, not about right. learning. So a saying in medical education is evaluation drives learning, right? If you're being evaluated on something, you know this. We've all had to take what's on the test, what's on the exam. That's what I'll study. Oh, there's no test? Okay, well, I'll just show up and, and we'll go in one ear out the other. So you're placing less value on it. So this is the hidden curriculum where, again, there's, the medical school may be saying they find this important, but then their actions speak differently. I'll give you a couple of other examples. We talked about before in a previous episode, there's a medical school that I kind of was associated with where the students wouldn't say, I don't know. Like they would figure any other way to say, I don't know. And that's something they learned over time. And I'm not sure why. I don't know why they learned that. Um, it wasn't you. You're, you're, you're saying it with great ease. Right. What kind that's of things right. would they say? Give me examples of how they skirted around, I don't know. Yeah, I'd be like, oh, so what do you think the differential diagnosis is of uh, seizure-like movements in a six-month-old? They were like, um, well, you know, it could be this, it could be Good this. Good question, doctor. What do you think it is? <laughs> exactly. And then I'd be okay. Then they say they go on to something else. I say, oh, you're talking about this disorder called Rett syndrome. What's the gene involved in Rett syndrome? Well, I know the gene for uh, Angelman syndrome is, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I know this. Yeah, that's great. I'm not asking you the other things you know. I'm just asking you specifically, what is this gene? And they just couldn't say, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't know. It was, it was crazy. But how did they learn that? Yeah, that's what I would love to know. And this yeah. was unique to this particular university. You hadn't seen it elsewhere. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I've certainly seen particular students do that, but I never saw every student I worked with do it. So that's the question. How do they learn these things? I'll, I'll give you an, another example. And, and again, we published another paper when we followed people doing those rounds in PDA. I'm, I'm really self-promoting uh, self here, eh, Ellie? I love it. I love it. You go, how did they? Let me give you another example. I'm not going to answer that question. I'm just going to keep giving you more examples. Well, I no, love it. I, no, mean, it's great. <laughs> I, I love how, these examples. I mean, honest. how did they is that's the hidden curriculum, right? These things are learned just by being in this environment. Yeah. Some doctor at some point either said it verbally, never say, no. I don't know. That, I don't think that's or, what happened. You know, they, you think what they, they do? watched a doctor constantly skirt around things they didn't know. Right. And they that person gets ahead or yeah. someone was berated for saying, I don't know. Right. Those oh, yeah, are sure. those are the things. Right. So another thing is there's this in institutional slang. Right. So you may have heard a lot about this because there's a healthcare crisis all over North America because of COVID, but particularly in the Western provinces. And they say there's not enough beds. Ali, there's not enough beds. There's not enough ICU beds. There's not enough ICU beds. We got we got to do something about these ICU beds. Do you think they mean physical beds? Like I an do. actual bed? That's I not what they mean. Bed every time that, they see that's it. That's not okay. what they mean. What they mean is beds means nurses. You don't have enough nurses to take care of that patient in a particular bed. You can find a bed anywhere. There's beds lying around the hospital. That's not the issue. Now, of course, there's also ventilators and IVs. We maybe you're running low on those. But in general, when we say a hospital doesn't have enough beds, you don't mean beds. You mean nurses to take care of those patients okay. in the beds. I actually thought it was physical beds and actual space. Meaning if no. we even found a bed, where would we put them? There are rooms that fit four and fit two. We can't have six a room. I thought maybe it was something right. like that. I didn't realize it was a So, so this is a thing that nobody understands. And what is the reason for this, right? The reason why that we use this institutional slang of beds is because 
the higher ups, which is hospital administrators, but more particularly in Ontario, in, in Canada, it's uh, provincial governments who are funding it. They don't want people saying, oh, we don't have enough nurses because the solution, like you're Joe Everyman there, Ali, what do you think the solution is? You don't have enough nurses. Train and hire more nurses, bud. Hey, Joe Everyman. We Joe Everyman, have Joe Everyman on, on more often. Uh, I love that he talks like Keanu Reeves, but there are implications to that, right? It means obviously we should be funding nursing schools. We should be training more nurses, all these things, but people don't want to talk about that. So the real question is, how do I know that? Right? When yeah. did I learn this, this craziness about what beds really mean? I don't know, but I certainly learned it through the course of my studies in medicine. So I'll give you a couple more examples. So do you know, Ali, who the lowest paid, or actually, let's ask Joe Everyman. Let's bring uh, that guy back. I'm here. Uh, Joe Everyman, who do you think is the lowest paid specialists in medicine? Oh, uh, family doctor? <laughs> uh, close. Usually it's uh, pediatricians and psychiatrists, less than nah, that. And the highest every, paid- Man, every day wait, wait, Joe doesn't know the words pediatrician. He says family doctor thinking it means pediatrician. Listen, man, don't denigrate Joe Public or Joe Everyman. So, okay, yeah. Joe Everyman, who do you think gets paid the most? Uh, specialists. Okay, so you think <laughs> Joe Everyman knows the word specialists? He does. Okay. He doesn't have to be stupid. Anyway, okay, anyway, it is specialist. Usually we say ophthalmologists, dermatologists right. get paid the most. So that's fine. But the problem is that's just a fact of life, and there's many reasons for that, historical, and we can talk about that later at another, another uh, episode, occasion. perhaps. There we go. Where's that lady <laughs> writing it down? That's jail every woman. The problem is medical students learn this. I've had first year medical students say like, oh, you know, those those specialists are in it to make money. And if I really want to, you know, be altruistic, I'll go into pediatrics or something like that. Like, how do you know this? When you learned this, it's the second week of medical school you're telling me this. How did you? So they already understand this. And of course, there's an inherent value placed on pediatrics, family medicine as well, psychiatry. Also, those specialties are female predominant. So there is this whole sexism as well that's going on with that. So we say all, all specialties are equally important, but that's not shown in the way we fund different specialties. I'll give you one uh, more example about this. So in medicine, privacy is super important, right? We, we always talk about how important privacy is. It's so important. You know, the patient's medical chart is private. I'm just talking about the whole idea of privacy, but I'll get to the hidden curriculum in a second. You've been in an emergency room before, Ali? Sure. I'm assuming. So do you remember what separates often you from the person next to you in an emergency room or in a hospital room? What separates us? Like an armrest? What are you talking about here? <laughs> no, when you're in a... <laughs> yeah, sometimes it's just an armrest, but it's that thin curtain. You know that curtain that separates oh, in that you? I thought you yeah. meant in the waiting room. You're talking about when you're in the like triage or in yes, like a different yes. room. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thin, 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 thin curtain. curtain. Right. Their business is your business. Well, that's what I'm saying. So privacy is so important. But yet, in an emergency room, in a hospital room, all that separates you is a thin curtain from the person. And you, as you said, you could hear every single thing that goes on with that person, and you know what's happening with them. How to is that respecting- 
to call back to uh, our our last episode, that's why uh, George Costanza got to see a sponge bath in the other side of a curtain once that we could all relate to because we all know how thin that curtain is. Exactly. In our previous episode, we 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 saw George talk about that. So this is another example. So again, we're what I'm talking about is the medical school, the medical systems, and individual doctors are saying one thing and, and doing another. Privacy is so important. You gotta respect privacy. Like the way you structured this emergency room does not allow for privacy. The way you structured this hospital room does not allow for privacy. That was my point with this privacy example. You are an evidence guy. You've proven that time and time again. If this is so hidden, what is the evidence? Say you know where does this show itself in uh, in 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 practice? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's a good question. There are some of these consequences that have been theorized and shown in some articles to have detrimental effects on medical students over time. So they look at cynicism over time. And you can imagine you start off as a medical student, all happy and idyllic and then and, and idealistic even. And then as time goes on, you become more and more cynical over time. So they think, and, and, and it's kind of like, you know, you can imagine the mind of a medical student. They're all, uh, you know, idealistic and optimistic. And then they see, oh my gosh, they're teaching us this. But then again, the wars, this isn't the way it is. And, and they're experiencing these conflicts, right? Between the formal curriculum and the hidden curriculum. And the theory is this tension can contribute to emotional neutralization. So, you know, not caring as much about your patients, right? And some people say, maybe that's a good thing. And that's, that's a probably a debate that we could have. On one hand, you shouldn't probably break down in tears with every single patient you see on a daily basis. If I see like 15 patients in a day and I broke down tears about each of them, that's probably not a realistic response. Uh, You probably have to be able to uh, be emotionally neutral in some of these situations. Of course, you can't be a robot. And, you know, obviously I've been very emotionally upset with uh, some of my patients, but I always say my opinion is they shouldn't have to comfort me, right? Like I should still be trying to comfort them. Uh, But but I certainly have been been, been upset about that. And again, another potential episode, is it ever okay to cry in front of your your patients? Oh, wow. It's a very interesting thing to also talk about. Will you have 20 examples of when you cried for us? Because I think that would be <laughs> amazing. <laughs> Maybe not 20, but it's happened okay. before. So yeah. anyways, so these are these things. There's this adoption of a ritualized professional identity. It's like, you know, this is what a doctor has to be, right? Which there could be good things about that. There could be a lot of bad things if you think that there is a prescribed way you need to be functioning as a doctor. And this change in ethical integrity, right? You know, uh, are you losing some of these ethical principles from before? So, and that's been shown in, in several studies about that. So it is concerning and the evidence kind of supports that this conflict between the hidden curriculum and formal curriculum can really affect medical students. So I guess it's got to be challenging to sort this out because it's called the hidden curriculum. So at times it would be so hidden that you're not even sure, as you've suggested in many of your examples, you're like, I don't know where they learned it, but I assume they learned it here or there. How do you solve something when you don't even know where and how it's being taught? Yeah, exactly. And so the number one thing is basically you 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 hit the nail on the head. I always say shine a light on it. Expose the hidden curriculum. You will never get rid of the hidden curriculum. It's not possible. Right. It's very okay. similar. So and it's quite similar to the unconscious bias we talked about before. You it's also similar to racism. Yeah, it's always going to be there, but you need to shine a light on it and have people more aware of it. So again, 
when one of uh, my articles came out, uh, this is and this is not I'm not trying to brag. It was picked up by the National Post, and the National Post did an article about it. It was about these unprofessional behaviors, and and another part of the hidden curriculum is the tolerance of un, unprofessional behaviors. So there was one physician when I was in medical school who was known for like just flying off the handle, taking scalpels and throwing them at the wall at a dartboard. <laughs> I wish no, just in a um, just in a fit of rage. Yeah, it was. It's crazy. It's crazy behavior. You know, he was polite to medical students because they were just learning, but ruder to his residents. Yell at them, swear at them. More impolite to uh, the and rude to the male residents versus female. Oh, he was the, the Gordon Ramsay of medicine. It sounds like. Yeah. Huh? Welcome exactly. to Hell's Kitchen. And this stuff is just tolerated. And and so part of one of the aspects we focus on in this article is this tolerance of unprofessional behaviors. So students will learn through the hidden curriculum that we should just tolerate the, this behavior, which of course you shouldn't. In the article that, that I wrote, there was one example where it's kind of hard to imagine, but it's like a it was someone who I presume was of an ethnic minority and the attending physician, right, his boss, would always call him by the wrong name. And they would correct the boss and say, no, actually, my name is is this. And they'd be like, they would just keep calling them the wrong name. And not like a nickname or anything. You know, just, just ridiculous stuff. Like, yeah. why are Don you Don Cherry. They Don Cherry it. That's, that's, that's <laughs> what know, you would do. All you time. know, it's the same, you know, it's just this kind of stuff. So that was one of the examples. But anyway, we, our article talked about different aspects of the hidden curriculum that we talked about. And it was picked up by the National Post. And then I got some uh, emails from some people some heads of medical schools and they were basically saying how oh you know i i know that that's happened before but we've addressed the hidden curriculum so we've addressed it let's move on and i'm like you don't even know what you're talking about you this is not something that you can address like it's always going to be there so this concept that you can just address it by doing like a let's do a little seminar or an in-service or a or a course on it. it it just doesn't work that way but i'm curious why would they message you and tell you we've addressed it so let's move on as though you're some investigative journalist or something why do they need to tell you that you just stated that this is an issue and them saying we've addressed it and it's not a thing is almost incriminating themselves and making themselves look bad they could have just yeah never I messaged know. you i know i know i don't know why you'd assume that i don't know People uh, act very differently. And there were some more nuanced edits, some uh, some other medical schools, the deans or the deans for the undergraduate medical program, published some editorials and things like that. I can link to some of them if you guys are interested uh, to read up on them and, and where they have a more nuanced take. They're like, you know, we acknowledge the hidden curriculum and we're working to address it and things like that without saying it's been solved. But I don't know why. I mean, But it would even take so should... long to address it, right? To really- Of course. You have to retrain people of, with so much experience experience and older doctors and medical staff, you have to really go all the way through. Everybody hates like, oh God, I got to go to this other stupid training thing, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Good luck. But but there are some ways to address it uh, other than just doing seminars like that. And I think a lot of it is, there's some research about ways to address it. So one of them is to make the hidden curriculum more explicit. So one study that was done, people apply for medical school by writing essays, right? And a lot of the people who who would write the essays, you know, people include stuff like they're like, okay, they ask some very specific questions like to answer as part of the essay. It's not like just a free form. They're like, but I wasn't able to talk about my volunteer 
experience in Uganda. So I'm going to shoehorn that in. And I'm going to, so, you know, answering questions that you weren't asked, kind of inflating your self-worth, talking about how it was my destiny since I was a child to be a physician and things like that. And, and thinking about what's the proper response. So who's reading my essay and what, what do they want to get out of it? And, and how am I supposed to address that? So, you know, not being authentic essentially, right? Mm-hmm. And so this, this study looked at a bunch of these medical school application letters, but they had some interesting conclusions afterwards. Okay, that's fine. They found all these kind of like, not sketchy things, but, but you know, inauthenticity of these letters. But in order to address it, the, what they suggested is the next year, what they should do is say, ask a question like, do you feel like asking a question to the letter writers, ask a question like this, do you feel inauthentic sometimes when you're, when you're applying to medical school? How do you reconcile that? Right, so it's not getting rid of anything. It's just asking the the students who are applying to address their perceptions of how do you reconcile feeling inauthentic? Do you know what I mean? And that that type of thing is often very helpful in in at least bringing the hidden curriculum to the forefront. So then at least you're acknowledging it. This is such a funny question, you know. Do you ever feel like a complete fraud and phony because that's what you really are sometimes? <laughs> Well, that's uh, that's enough, man. So who's making notes here? That's another topic, which is imposter syndrome, <laughs> which is, which ha- comes up a lot in medicine. There's another study where you which looked at providing evidence against the hidden curriculum. So stereotype that I think maybe uh, Joe Public, what was his name? Joe Average, Joe Everyman, I think you call Joe him. Everyman. Might think is that. People who go into family medicine have lower marks than people who become specialists, right? That's a stereotype that a lot of uh, people have. So one study just looked at the data. They looked at the past several years from the medical school, which specialty people went into. And lo and behold, there was no difference between people who went to family medicine and people who went into specialties. So sometimes you just got to provide evidence against these stereotypes, right? And, and the hidden curriculum. And probably the the last thing you can do, which is really hard to do, is actually provide patient-centered care. So always put the patient and their experiences first. And it's a tough it's a tough thing to do to always be mindful of that and always remember the, the the patient first. We talked about this in our quote difficult patients and difficult parents episode, but by putting that patient first and their experiences first, you're able to to address that. One way they've thought about doing this, and there's some evidence that this helps prevent cynicism and this emotional hardening and emotional neutralization, is to do what's called a longitudinal clerkship. Okay, so clerkship is when you're doing the on-the-job training where you rotate through pediatrics and obstetrics and surgery and things like that, and you just go from one to the other. But this works best in smaller programs, So instead what they do is say a patient comes into the emergency room with abdominal pain. You don't get assigned to the emergency room shift, you get assigned to that patient and then you follow them through the hospital. So then they get admitted to the ward and oh, they go to, and then you you do the admission for them. Then they go to radiology. Then you go to radiology, watch them get the x-ray or the CT scan done. Then you review it with the radiologist. Then you go back, give the patient the results. Then it's the surgeon. So the surgeon says, oh, you actually have appendicitis. We're going to take you to the operating room and you go into the operating room and do the surgery with the surgeon. Then you come out and you take care of them. And then and when they get discharged, you see them again in follow-up in six weeks to see how they're doing. Sounds like a lot of time spent 
with each patient. Right. And so the, the argument is you can still get all those different aspects of medicine, but it's not all doing a month of radiology and a month of surgery and then a month of inpatient medicine. You're doing it all throughout by following these patients throughout and, and, and experiencing things and from the patient's point of view. And the evidence suggests that those longitudinal clerkships can actually help, like I said, with the uh, help to avoid cynicism and the emotional neutralization. So another kind of concrete thing that medical schools could do. You're clearly passionate about this. I heard more excitement in your voice talking about this than even uh, maybe talking about Seinfeld. And I thought you weren't excited about anything as much as you are about Seinfeld. Thank you for listening, everybody. Asif, are you everybody's doctor? No, please remember that although I'm a doctor, I'm not your doctor. Medical issues we talk about are for your interest and information only, and they're not medical advice. Please consult your medical professionals for actual medical advice. Before we get out of here, just a reminder, follow us, Twitter, Dr. V Comedian, Instagram, Dr. V Comedian. We're on Facebook. We're on LinkedIn. You know, we're just seem to be everywhere. What's very helpful for us is for you to think about recommending the podcast to just one person. Again, we talked about Reddit. If any of you guys are on Reddit, get on that Reddit podcast. Mention our podcast to everybody and uh, give us some uh, feedback. A big thanks, by the way, to Podcast Playlist on CBC Radio who gave us a shout out earlier this month. So that's it for today. We'll uh, talk to you guys later. See ya.